break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out 24th of January 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. We've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. Going to be talking about billionaires and their super PACs. We're going to be talking about the ongoing coup or potential coup in Burkina Faso. Some swirling information out there. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with rental assistance here in the United States, which isn't enough and is leaving many people on the brink of possible eviction. million people told the Census Bureau very recently that they are, quote, not at all confident they can make the rent in February. Just about 11 million said they are only, quote unquote, slightly confident they can make it work with their landlord next month. And 12.5 million are moderately confident about the same issue. So essentially, 32 million people in the United States are not 100% sure they can pay their rent next month. At the same time, the rental assistance programs rolled out during the earlier stages of the pandemic are running out of cash. There was quite a bit of back and forth as these programs were being developed about how much back rent there really was. Some were saying $10 billion. Some said it could be as high as $50 billion. What we know now is that it's certainly closer to the latter number because the $46 billion appropriated by the federal government is seeming like not enough at this point. In terms of strict cash, the Treasury Department is saying that 25 to $30 billion is out of the door. So the main question at play is, are the leftover billions enough money? The real challenge is not every area has the same needs or capabilities to get the money out. So some states need more cash desperately and are also doling it out fast and, of course, basically running out. Other places are getting the money out of the door sluggishly, and some just have less need. The government has tried to spur the program by saying if the money isn't spent, they will shift the money around to states and localities that can spend it. Now, in some cases, that's all right because places don't need the money. In others, though, it creates a challenge because places might be sluggish getting money out of the door because they're callous, incompetent, corrupt, or overwhelmed, which means money could get shifted away, but that people still need it in the area where it was shifted from. So the government has also tried to press many of those places to do more with the money before they take it away. And that's created all sorts of issues. In New York, for instance, the state requested $1.1 billion when money was reallocated from places that weren't doling it out. They only got $27 million because the federal government pushed a number of states and localities to try harder to get 800 some odd million dollars out the door. So you can see the problem in New York wasn't just New York. Texas asked for $3 billion and got $19 million. The need obviously remains quite large. California asked for $1.9 billion and got $68.7 million. The main state housing program in California said the gap between the amount of money they have allocated and the amount that renters have applied for is $4.2 billion. So 
So just those three states alone have needs that would nearly exhaust existing federal funds meant for the entire country. The issue comes at a fraught moment because not only has the CDC eviction moratorium lifted, but more and more states and localities are lifting pandemic-inspired renter protections, raising the specter of a larger volume of evictions in the coming months. The only real solution is, of course, more funding, which Congress seems sure not to provide. And while some states are increasing funds, it's unlikely that'll be enough. So here we are in the U.S., the richest country in the history of countries, standing on the brink of hundreds of thousands of people facing eviction in the middle of the winter. There appears to be a coup on the way in Burkina Faso. We say appears because, as we went to press today, there were conflicting accounts as to the state of things. But what does seem clear is that a grouping within the military is making a play for power, and the circumstantial evidence seems to show they are succeeding. Over the weekend, there were numerous reports of gunfire around military bases and at least one report that the president, Roche Kabore, had been taken hostage. And that report is still out there and the president's whereabouts remain unknown, at least at the time of our recording. The president's party says he survived an assassination attempt but won't confirm his location. And this comes after rumors that there was a military coup that was suppressed in Burkina just a week ago and amidst protest against the government's policies. Despite a ban on anti-government protest, hundreds still took to the streets of Ouagadougou on Saturday in opposition, primarily to the government's inability to stem the armed insurgency raging across swaths of the country between the government, its international partners, mainly from the West, and ISIS and al-Qaeda. Those protests, which also expressed solidarity with recent large protests in Mali against sanctions against that country, were tear-gassed and repressed. The situation in Burkina is very similar to the changes we are seeing across West Africa that are combining two interrelated grievances, the broader war raging across the Sahel region of the continent and the role of French and Western powers in keeping the region mired in poverty. The Sahel is the transitional region between the Sahara Desert and the sub-Saharan savannas. It stretches across the continent. From the Atlantic Ocean to Chad, the region has been engulfed in serious conflict for a decade or so now. The causes are a combination of poverty, lack of state services, and corruption on the one hand, and the challenges of climate change and generating conflicts over water and land between herders and farmers, and on top of that, ethnic issues that transcend colonial borders on the other hand. And this has created a space for groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS to emerge, presenting alternative state-building projects that transcend existing colonial borders and attempt to use Islam, which has a major centuries-old presence in the region, as a unifying factor. The West has intervened significantly with French troops as the backbone since 2012. They fear the interrelated challenges of chaos disrupting a key region for resource extraction, migrant flows into Europe, and the possibility of some sort of Islamic state, quote-unquote, emerging in the Sahel. Ultimately, the intervention has not worked. In fact, the wars in Burkina, Mali, Nigeria, and a few other places have actually gotten worse. People across West Africa have, over the past couple years, risen in anger over this state of affairs across the region. The broader issue of the wars going badly has become wrapped up in people's views that the Western intervention was not only not helping, but that perhaps that even some of the so-called insurgent violence was created by them to maintain control over West Africa, since the bolstering of the armed forces around quote-unquote counterterrorism was the primary way these pro-Western, poverty-promoting governments were staying in power. 45% of people in Burkina Faso are living in poverty. In rural areas, less than 5% of people have access to electricity. And over the past year, the pace of fighting there has increased. So it fits the overall profile. And so does the, at least attempted, coup. 
In the past 18 months, both Guinea and Mali have had coups over similar issues and where military governments have gained at least a honeymoon period with the broader masses looking for change. Whether or not these governments are going to promote any serious change in the status quo is a question for the future. Of course, military governments in West Africa have produced the sterling example of the great Thomas Sankara and also the totally destructive and devastating so-called Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone. But whatever happens in the future, it's obvious that major changes are happening in West Africa related to mass anger at the neo-colonial mass poverty and the violent wars that have emerged from its contradictions. Well, last week we reported to you about how the vast majority of quote-unquote max donations to politicians come from the richest 1% of zip codes, which got me thinking about super PACs, the preferred way billionaires funnel cash to elections in order to control the political process. And today is the 12th anniversary of Citizens United, which created super PACs and opened up political giving to make it a more or less anything-goes sort of reality. So in honor of the anniversary, we took a look at the narrow range of ruling elites contributing the vast majority of super PAC cash. The top 1% of donors to super PACs in the 2022 electoral cycle so far account for 91% of all donations to super PACs. The top 100 donors accounted for 64%. That is the top 100 out of 51,000 people who have donated to a super PAC this cycle. So you get a sense of how few billionaire types are controlling the flood of super PAC money into the system. On the 10th anniversary of Citizens United, so two years ago, Public Citizen looked at similar issues and found that just 25 donors between 2010 and 2020 made up half of all super PAC donations, $1.4 billion in total, and also found that the top 100 donors accounted for 60% of the donations. One quarter of the donations, 25%, came from just five people. Interestingly enough, while Republicans are well-known as a hyper-capitalist party, it's notable that in the 2018 midterms, 74% of all super PAC cash for pro-Democratic Party efforts came from the financial industry. Ultimately, this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the role big money plays in politics. But whether we're talking about max donations, super PACs, foundations, or other ways of influencing the political scene, it's clear that the money that pays for the ads, the shirts, the bumper stickers, the staff, the offices, the mailings, and so on, is mainly coming to the two major parties from a narrow group of billionaires and almost billionaires. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. 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 Yeah.